Welcome back to another episode of the We Live to Build podcast. The first time you have a liquidity event for your company, chances are it will be far more money than you ever imagined or worked with before. If you're not smart and careful, you could lose it all quickly. In this candid talk, I speak with Dmitry Farbarov, a certified financial planner and certified financial analyst at the Miracle Mile Advisors LLC, which is a registered investment advisor about many different things like What's the difference between a certified financial planner, certified financial analyst, and certified public accountant? What is an asset and a liability? What is inflation? What's the difference between wealth preservation and wealth generation? What does it mean to diversify a portfolio? How can you create a balanced portfolio? What happens psychologically to someone who suddenly makes a massive amount of money? What are the things that happen after a liquidity event? What should people do to prepare themselves for this change? What are the different methods of investment people can look at? And what are the pros and cons of working with a wealth manager like Dimitri? So thanks so much to Dimitri for spilling the details, and I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to We Live to Build. My name is Sean Weisbrot, and I'm an entrepreneur, investor, and advisor based in Asia for over 12 years. Join us every week to fast track your personal growth so you can meet the ever increasing demands of the company or companies you are passionately building. Time waits for no one, so let's get started now. Thank you for taking the time to sit down with me and talk about wealth management and uh, things related to finance. Dimitri, welcome to the show. Sean, I really appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time. So before we talk any further about all the tremendously large topics related to this we could talk about, tell everyone what it is you're doing right now that makes you the right person to have this conversation. Well, I'm an investment advisor here on the West Side in Los Angeles. I work with entrepreneurs, business owners, founders uh, who come into wealth really for the first time in their lives. And it's a passion of mine. It's something I've dedicated about 25 years of my personal and professional life to. Um, I'm very excited to be in this stage of my career where I'm actually launching and, and building my own practice. I'm overseeing $75 million in assets right now in a firm that's very unique in what we do, specifically focused on entrepreneurs. Uh, we manage close to $2 billion and it's just a perfect time in my life. I've got a CFA and a CFP. Um, I think I'm just well qualified given my background and passions to, to help the, the folks that I do. Great. Thank you for the introduction. And I think this audience is probably in the right place to hear about this topic because hopefully some or all of them will in the future come into money. And I assume it'll probably be for the first time for most of them. So you mentioned several titles, so I want to first start by talking about those. You mentioned CFP and CFA. What are those? So CFA is a chartered financial analyst designation. It's a three-year exam. It's uh, incredibly difficult. And it's a focus on an in-depth study of the capital markets. Those who have the CFA are typically value investors like analyzing balance sheets and looking at numbers and crunching numbers. They, they work for hedge funds, private equity, venture capital, and so on. Uh, and it's something that I wanted to do being a kind of a protege of Warren Buffett. So that was something that was very important to me to accomplish. And then the CFP is a certified financial planner. 
And someone who has a CFP typically focuses on planning and really dedicating their lives to helping clients have a transparency around their finances. What's great about what what I have is kind of the combination of the two really allows me to have a strong in-depth knowledge of the capital markets as well as the planning component to mix the two together. I think it's really important that you mention that you have both because I was thinking about that as you were saying, oh, so you know, having both of those means you can do both. So that it's really cool. Thank you for, for answering before I have to ask. There's another term that's kind of in this area that people may be thinking about, which I also would like you to explain real quickly, which is a CPA. So a CPA is a certified public accountant and there are different types of CPAs, but the primary focus of a CPA in the kind of the wealth advisory world is to do file taxes. And, and submit taxes to the IRS and help clients pay for those. There are those that focus on planning around taxes. So it's not only let's just submit the tax filing as, along with the tax payment, but it's also helping you, you the client, think in advance and prepare for changes that might take place both from the tax code perspective as well as uh, someone's personal or business finances. So that's a tax planning angle. And of course, there are CPAs that focus on consulting and assurance and so many different other items. So it sounds to me like with your two certifications that you get to have all the fun and don't have to do the boring part of dealing with the taxes. Precisely. (laughs) But I think it's also interesting you were mentioning. So if there's a certified public accountant who's also a certified financial planner, then they can help you figure out how to make money in a way that it's documented so that your tax burden is also limited, right? Well, absolutely. If they're doing the job right, that's that would be ideal because frankly, CPAs are generally the most trusted uh, advisors in, in the industry amongst lawyers and even financial advisors, the so-called financial advisors. And, and they deserve that right because they're filing perhaps one of the most important documents someone's going to have to file financially speaking. But someone who has a CFP really, really focuses their taxes on planning and planning ahead and thinking outside of the box, sort of like an entrepreneur might for someone's personal finances as a personal CFO, helps them think of what may lie ahead and how to protect against future tax increases and and simply changes to the tax code. How common is it for a CPA to also have a CFP or for someone like yourself to have a CFA and a CFP? With a CPA and a CFP, it's quite rare. I've seen it maybe there are probably about 10,000 CPAs that do tax tax planning in Los Angeles. And I'd say that number with CFPs is probably under 100. So it's, it's quite a rarity. Uh, there are many CPAs who do the work as of a CFP. They simply don't charge for it. They charge for the tax planning. With a CFA and a CFP, that's that's also quite rare, but it's becoming a little bit more common than, than in the past. I'd say 20 years ago, almost everyone in our industry had a Series 7. And then people graduated from the Series 7 and got a CFP because they weren't selling products anymore. They wanted to sell planning. I think right now, the CFP has become largely commoditized as well. The CFA is really a kind of step up to the CFP because the third level of the CFA is an in-depth kind of conversation about the CFP. And the first two levels are more quant-based. Someone with a CFP, they think in a macro term um, in terms of planning, the CFA really helps someone pinpoint the micro. Uh, on the personal finances, really think in, in, in quant-based terms. Let's talk about something that I think is easy to understand, but most people probably get wrong. What is an asset? What is a liability? What are the difference between them? And why is it important to know that in terms of wealth management? An asset is a piece of capital that has value and likely grows in value. 
over time. A liability is an item on the balance sheet that is, is going to be likely causing a reduction of cash flow or an asset over time. An asset is something that grows. A liability is something that takes away from the overall net wealth of a client. What is inflation and why is it so detrimental to wealth management and growth? Inflation is that's a, it's such an important topic right now because I think for the next decade, it's going to be the primary source of volatility in the capital markets. But inflation is basically a reduction of purchasing power over time. So the value of your currency drops in value, the cost of goods go up in value, and the result is you have less purchasing power over time. So is that why a company that was successful 20 years ago may, may have sold for 20 million, but now is worth 2 billion? Absolutely. It's the same reason why an athlete was making $25,000 in 1975 is making $25 million today. Obviously, there's a lot that has to do with the growth of the league, but also inflation. Same reason that a stick of Bubble gum used to be five cents and now it's 25 cents or perhaps a dollar these days. I think in terms of a uh, price of a hamburger, same sort of story. Yeah, I remember my dad telling me in 1950, his father purchased a three bedroom, two bathroom house with two car garage and front back side yards for $8,000. And if you look at that house today, it still stands in Miami. It's worth over half a million dollars. Nobody did anything to it. They didn't tear it down and rebuild it. It's not the land. It's There's no change. Right. The value of an asset takes two forms. One is on an absolute basis. How much does it cost relative to the demand versus the supply of an item? And secondarily is how much did it go up relative to the appreciation of in, the, in this case, the U.S. dollar. That's how an asset effectively has value. It's in, in absolute as well as relative terms. So what is the difference between wealth preservation and wealth generation? It's a great question. Uh, so wealth preservation is the idea of preserving one's capital relative to inflation. So let, let's assume inflation goes up 3% compounded over 30 years. That number is well above 30%, right? And so if someone just kept a million dollars in cash, that's 30 plus percent depreciation, the purchasing power of the dollar, even though the number is still a million dollars, what it can actually buy is much less. Wealth growth or the growth of capital is the concept of growing well beyond the growth of inflation over time. So my grandfather died a long time ago, like 50 years ago. My grandmother's been alone ever since. She was lucky to get his social security. She also has her own social security and a pension from a job that she had for like 30 years. So between all of that and the fact that she's purchased her house and her car in cash a long time ago, essentially she's living on government money and she's doing quite well for herself and still has a bunch of cash you know, in the bank. Even though it's losing value, she could easily die and not run out of money. She's already 87. Someone today looking to retire or someone like myself, who's in the middle of their career, would never be able to assume that that's going to be possible in 30 years. So how can people create a portfolio and diversify it and balance it so that they can maximize generation right now? It's a great question. Really, the idea is to diversify one's wealth across not only stocks and bonds, which is important because you really, you're really capturing the, the growth of uh, GDP around the world, but also to diversify one's wealth outside of stocks and bonds, whether it's real estate, more recently, Bitcoin or, or cryptocurrencies have become a source of diversification because the reality is what's happened 30 years ago in the markets and the last 50 years in the markets won't necessarily repeat themselves in the same patterns going forward over the next 30 years. So a lot of the assumptions that people 
people have made may not be the case going forward. We always have to think ahead and in terms of how we approach our wealth. There's a long-term perspective that we must have, but we have to look at it very, very short-term because things change. And that's really, really important because you know, buying real estate may have been the way to, to diversify wealth over time, but going forward over the next 30 years, that may not be the case. How do you think they're going to change? What do you think the trends will be or how do you think people will manage their money? And how can they adjust their portfolio over their lifetime to maximize returns and slowly minimize risk? Sure. So in, in terms of how things change, as I mentioned, over the last 30 years, there have been certain trends in the general capital markets, which were led by a decrease in the rate of inflation, right? From the 80s all the way down to today, uh, the 30-year treasury went from 18% close to a low of probably in the mid $1 range. So I guess the point is that for the next 30 years, inflation, and therefore, as it's judged by interest rates going up, is likely going to rise. We don't know how fast or how, how soon, but the reality is that's going to impact the way uh, asset prices are allocated. So right now, the access to capital is very, very high because interest rates are so low. And, and therefore, the ability for investors to invest in startups and businesses at high valuations, whether they're in the private markets or in the public markets and buying stocks and, and bonds or real estate, the access to the capital is, is very low and therefore the ability to invest and they, they push up prices. But what happens in the alternate scenario when money becomes more expensive with interest rates going up or perhaps inflation starts picking up steam and it's no longer at 1%, but Interest rates are four, five, six, seven percent. Therefore, the the value of certain asset classes, as we've known them in the past, may not exist going forward. So, I guess the key is just is to be nimble and to be able to view the world from a geopolitical sense and from a day to day sense is so important. But at the same time, removing some of the noise. How can people who are starting to build a portfolio now, when they're possibly willing to be more risky, make decisions in a way that maximizes returns now? but then kind of converts over to being less risky and therefore moves from wealth generation to wealth preservation. How do you rebalance your portfolio over your lifetime to make a lot and then save a lot? Sure. I would say in the early years of one's life, uh, and when I went in, in, in their adult life, investing in equities makes the most amount of sense. And, and in my world, those are public equities via the stock market, but you can invest in equities. You're, you're effectively buying companies. The best, best that, uh, the ideal situation would, to, would be to diversify across um, many equities geographically, um, different sizes, as well as, uh, you know, not only in the United States, but elsewhere, whether in Europe or where you are in Asia. And um, so you, you get access to growth. Um, you, there's, no, there's no need to buy fixed income right now, right? You're not preserving wealth at this point, then fixed income bonds are for wealth preservation. What your focus is on equity and, and being a part owner of companies that, that grow alongside the rest of the world, right? Um, and so you build wealth by investing in those companies. You want to avoid the mistake of buying, not being diversified and buying into one company. And, and all of a sudden, they, they, there's a, something happens with the firm. And before you know it, you're in trouble. So you have to balance the desire for growth, but at the same time, diversification, you don't want to, uh, you want to avoid the mistakes. So bottom line is while, while you're still generating revenue, cash flow in one's regular profession, uh, you should be investing primarily in, in equities. 
right? And and then that number drops over time as as you approach retirement and where you're no longer going to be generating cash flow. Um, at that point, you would then you know focus more on wealth preservation. And at that point, the combination it's a combination of preserving the principal, but also preserving the the purchasing power over time and understanding that there's a 30, 30 to 40 to 50 year window, right? In our, in our demog- generation, uh, we're going to live to 90 to hundred to perhaps beyond that point. So that point at which we stop working to the point at which we leave this world, that's 30 to 50 year period. And that's, that has never been the case. So that's going to be a completely different ball game in terms of preservation capital. I didn't hear you mention investing in cryptocurrencies now when people are willing to be risky with their portfolio. Why not? Personally, I'm a huge fan of cryptocurrencies. And obviously, they're all different. The concept behind having an asset that will appreciate over time, the supply doesn't increase. It's basically like you're investing in almost in some sense, a precious metal that is not tied to a deflating or inflating currency. To me, the concept of blockchain is very, very exciting. And I think there's a tremendous potential. I kind of liken it to the early days of the internet. The technology, I think, is that credible going forward. At the same time, the idea that a currency or an alternative to a government-backed currency is going to grow in power is, is probably threatening to most governments globally. And I think at some point, the, the concept behind taxation becomes a threat and regulation. And so for me, as a CFA, it is very difficult to put a value on such an asset. And therefore, I don't see it as an investment right now. I see it more of a speculation in a prospective asset class, which is very exciting. And so to the extent that one wants to protect one's currency to depreciation over time, there is room to own crypto. Based on the conversations I've had with investors, people have a different perspective of what it is. Is it a currency? Is it an investment? Or is it a worst case scenario asset class that won't decline in value against everything else? I would like to point out for the purposes of this conversation that the mention of cryptocurrencies as an investment in particular, you were talking about how it's a fixed creation of coins. Bitcoin, to my knowledge, is one of the few that actually has a finite number and therefore could potentially be considered or likened to a gold or a silver style uh, commodity. But there are also a number of cryptocurrencies out there that don't have a cap. And so you should be more careful with those. Let's change our focus slightly and talk about the liquidity event. So what happens psychologically to someone who suddenly makes a lot of money when they've never had the access to that kind of money before? It's a great question. Uh, Psychologically, people are all very, very different. It depends on where they come from in terms of how they grew up around wealth and is You mentioned it's the first time that they're coming to a significant amount of capital. Some folks become anxious. Some folks become paranoid. Some folks become really impulsive and excited. So for every situation, it's a different approach to how you're going to handle them and, and, and guide them along what steps one needs to take. But the most important part is putting in place uh, boundaries and transparency around things um, and starting not from a perspective of what do you do with that money? but rather understanding what the objectives for that individual are, what their goals are, what their fears are, and and really what they're trying to accomplish in life from here on out, uh, because life changes dramatically. And so just being there to listen and helping them, rarely do they have a very, very clear vision of what they want to accomplish with that money. 
it's our job at that point in time to be the psychologist around kind of the situation and sit there and listen and ask questions and ultimately help them come to the answers that you will then help them accomplish. So what kind of questions would you ask them? Well, the most important one is what do you want your money to do for you? If you died today, what did you wish you would be able to accomplish or leave behind? Who would you protect? Who would you leave that money to? You know, things like that. Uh, what's most important to you? And once you have an understanding of, of those questions, then you can only begin talking about what does money mean to you, right? Just really going back to the basics. And, and obviously there are levels of sophistication. At the same time, understanding those basics is critical to me as the advisor to start formulating a game plan of transparency and, and planning around uh, you know, what they want to accomplish. And ultimately, the goal of that conversation is get to their objectives. They may have them. What are, what, what's the time frame of, of those objectives? Is it three, five, 10, 30, 100 years, right? And place the importance on those objectives in terms of priority. That's kind of the, the process at the initial point of discussion and conversation. What are some of the weirdest or strangest things you've heard people say they want to do with their money or people are asking them to do with their money on their behalf or th this kind of thing? Because I'm sure it happens actually quite often. With athletes and actors, my personal experience has been they're always asked to participate in buying restaurants and, and large stakes in private and illiquid businesses. You know, they got to $25 million, their eyes are on $100 million. They get $100 million, their eyes are on a billion dollars. And people start reaching out to you at like, no, tomorrow. So, you know, you hear about people wanting to buy islands. At the same time, there's also so the anxiety of, oh my gosh, I have this wealth for the first time. How do I not lose it? That's a completely different conversation. It seems like earning a lot of money suddenly can be extremely psychologically detrimental to the average person who has no experience managing money. So what can they do to prepare themselves for that event so that the bad stuff is minimized. The waste of money and, and the feelings and the people coming around and asking all, all of that. How do you prepare for that? The most important piece of advice is to have a plan. And most people are not equipped to create that plan by themselves. Some are, but very few. And really, it's surrounding themselves with really, really dedicated and trusted advisors. I think that's critical. Just as with a startup, you, you want to create a board of people who can give you advice and think outside of the box and poke holes at what you're doing. But it's important to have more than one advisor from that capacity, whether it's a CPA on the one hand, a trusted attorney and an investment advisor. Um, but at this point, it might be too early for investment advice, right? Because they don't have capital. But it's important to have those conversations. There are many great professionals that are dedicated to what they do to the extent that they will do it pro bono obviously with the hope of earning the business of the individual down the road, but having a, a number of individuals that can give advice before the fact. Uh, these are people who are so committed that they would do it in advance and not only do it after the fact, right? When someone comes into capital and really create a plan. Um, as I mentioned earlier, the plan has to be focused on what someone's needs are, right? To have a good idea of one's cash flow goals. And as you start formulating that plan, and making sure that there's transparency around that plan. And you're, you're already planning for taxes in advance of a sale. How do you structure your corporation? How do, you, how do you structure your personal assets in a way that once that capital comes in, it's located in a proper manner? And also how to, how to structure a buyout, whether it's a buyout through stock options and you know, warrants or whatever the case may be, vesting over time. There's so many considerations. So if you have the right advisors around you, they will give you the hopefully the right advice 
that will allow you to be prepared. And then once those assets come in, it's all about transparency and planning going forward. I think it's important to make sure that like an investor or a co-founder or a buyer of your company or your employees, that you look for people that understand you and fit with your personality because you may potentially be giving them control or at least your ear over how to control a massive amount of money. And if they're the wrong person, they could cost you your wealth too. Without a doubt. And we've seen it so often. I I think of basketball and, and Tim Duncan more recently. There are so many examples. Sean, what you mentioned about a personality type, I think it's critical. Uh, but at the same time, we often go to the individuals who, who share the same personality as we do. And if we're impulsive and we go work with someone who perhaps has similar proclivities, um, that could be potentially a risk. What I would suggest is this is an interview process that should take a long time. The people that you talk to should be referrals from people who, whom you respect and, and make sure that you can talk to potential clients of, of theirs that they might put you in touch with. Because at the end of the day, this is not a $100,000 conversation. This is a $20 million, This is a $100 million conversation that not only impacts you and your family for, for many, many generations, but also can really make meaningful impact on society and whatever things one is passionate about. This is such a critical decision. I think of it every lottery winner, almost everyone, although my firm actually recently brought in a, a lottery winner. But for the most part, you hear these stories about someone wins a lottery and they lose it all. When you don't appreciate wealth, when you don't know how to create a framework around that wealth, it's so incredibly easy to lose it all. And not just a framework, it's also a mindset. I was talking in this conversation earlier today with someone I'm going to bring on for an interview later uh, in February. And we were talking about the difference between an abundance mindset and a scarcity mindset and how people complain, why is there, you know, one percenters? Well, that's because they have an abundance mindset and everybody else has a scarcity mindset. And so the difference between someone who has a successful exit and someone who doesn't is the person with the abundance mindset. But then the difference between somebody who keeps their wealth and someone who loses it all is the person who's emotionally intelligent and capable of understanding that I need to be smart with how I utilize the money I've made rather than allowing any sort of whim to take me to where I think I should go. Or That's a great point. I bucket my individuals typically into two categories, and it's not a black and white comparison, but the first bucket is the entrepreneur, who is kind of the more impulsive creative type that is going from perhaps one startup to another. It's in our DNA, right? to do these sort of things. And so that individual is a lot more prone to potentially making a mistake on that next venture if they don't do it the right way. There's the individual who's a small business owner, uh, perhaps a family business over time, many generations. This is typically the only thing that they ever do. This is a 30-year adventure in their lives. And so for them, their approach is more about how do I not lose it all? The entrepreneur is thinking, how do I get to that next stage. And that's not always the case, but that's been my experience. So it's a completely different conversation. I've been mentoring this woman. She used to run a very successful podcast that had several million followers, but she didn't know how to monetize it. And eventually it fell apart. So I've been trying to help her get the podcast going again because she still has some of those followers. So it's easy to, to start up again. And I have ideas for her of how she could monetize and things like that. So she's in the process of making that mental leap to having an abundance mindset. We were talking about how does she put herself in a position where she 
can just focus on building the podcast for the next year or so. And so we got into like, how much are you spending right now? You know, go figure out what the, the average expenses over the, you know, the last six months. So you can get a baseline of what your costs will probably look like for the next year or two and look at how much you have, you know, in your portfolio right now to see if you can actually afford to do that, to make that investment in yourself. And when we looked at how much she was spending and how much she had available, we realized she had like five or six years of money and she thought like, I have nothing. And she had this idea, even though she had money to invest, she has this scarcity mindset. And so she was afraid to use any of it. And I was like, if you don't invest in something now and you're just living on it, it's going to dwindle away after several years, you'll have nothing and therefore no potential to have a cushion in order to do that. Most of the people that start companies actually have no cushion at all and are, are struggling for years to build something that can become profitable. You're in a different situation where you have something you can invest. You need to invest it in order to make something bigger for yourself because she's 50. It's a different conversation in your 20s and 30s and, and in your, in, when you're 50. So it was shocking to her that like, I would have the audacity to have this idea. Like it was so foreign to her that it was possible to use this money to invest in something that could generate a return. I enjoyed having that conversation. The scarcity mindset, I truly believe it's mostly someone's DNA. There's a bit of nurture there, but I have conversations with folks that absolutely love self-help books, right? They'll pick up a Tony Robbins and they'll run across the street talking about how passionate they're going to they're change their lives and so on. And there are other people who look at a self-help book and say, I can't do this. There's someone who can start exercising right away and, and, and stick to a regimen. There's those that can't. That goes back to the psychology element. And so with her, from your perspective, you can't imagine why she might have a scarcity mindset. And you can see it on paper. And in her mind, she has $2. She may have lost in the past and the fear is palpable. And that's what we deal with all the time. That's what I love about what I do. It's, it's really understanding because if you put the wrong strategy with the wrong individual, whatever area of life they're in, it won't work. And that's critical. And you can't look at numbers. Numbers don't matter when it comes to emotions. And that's the reality in life in general, right? If everyone just followed the numbers, everyone would be millionaires. It would be a completely different society, but we all make so many mistakes because we're human. Everything in psychology is about replacing, right? So if you have this bad habit, how do you get out of it? Well, you replace it with a different habit. And if you do that consistently long-term, it will become the norm for you, right? So if you're used to eating jelly donuts and you want to lose five pounds, stop eating donuts and eat apples instead. It's about that psychological shift. Teaching people to have an abundance mindset before they have a liquidity event is probably one of the most powerful ways to set them up for life for how to not waste what they've created. And Sean, what you're talking about is critical because of what role you're playing in this uh, equation. You're the coach. Without having that individual to guide them and, and being able to point out an individual's weaknesses, it becomes really, really difficult because we all have blind spots. So what you're doing is critical for this individual. That's why it's so important to have an advisor or a group of advisors in one, one's camp. What is the coolest thing you've ever heard someone come into your office and say, I want to do this with my money? One is I want to give it all away. What's something I haven't asked you yet that you wish I would have asked? How clients deal with volatility over time. When, when one's goals that were planned for and etched in stone change. And how do they deal through, through adversity once change happens? Because just because one comes into wealth doesn't make life easier. It makes, in many respects, so much more difficult. My most interesting experiences in life are when one is at the top of the mountain and they think that they're going to be there for a long time and they don't get there uh, right away. 
and whether it's on the personal side or on the financial side, how do you change? How do you adjust? How do you how do you hold someone's hand through volatility, uh, whether it be market or personal or otherwise? That will be the difference of whether they're successful investors and successful accomplishing their goals or not. And, um, and it's critical. Uh, I think my biggest my biggest uh, value add as an advisor is not to help someone make a plan. It's to keep someone aligned to their plan and honest to it because everyone will fail. And the question is, is it a micro failure or is it a macro failure? And um, I think that's the coolest part of my job. Well, in entrepreneurship, nothing is a failure. Everything is a learning opportunity. Without a doubt. It's just a question of when in, in their life that's the case and how much at risk they have, right? If you're 25 years old and uh, you can t- there, there are different levels of risk than when you're 75. And while most entrepreneurs uh, we come across these days are, are, are younger, I've seen scenarios where the, it's the first time that they come into wealth at 50 and 60 and 70. And so their level of risk is, is completely different. You were talking about how do you hold people's hand through volatility. What I've learned from my own experience is learning to be patient. You have to stay aligned to a long-term balanced portfolio where you need to have something as a hedge against that risk so that you can make sure you've got something left if you lose the other asset. It's a, it's a great point that you make. I think that when I, I mentioned many times in, the, in this conversation, the ideas of impulsivity, I think it's in the DNA of so many entrepreneurs. It's this blind na- naivete that causes them to think them possible and achieve really interesting things, think outside of the box. I don't think many of these individuals feel like they have enough. And there's always that itch to do something different and something else. And, and therefore, they're always looking around at what other people are doing. And so do you think Elon Musk feels that he's wealthy? <laughs> I don't think so. I, th- I think he's got that itch and, and he's got the competition of Bezos and other people. And, and so they're always going to be hungry for that next thing. And so that's where, that's where the mistakes can happen. If, if they see someone else doing something and they want it. Or if they see another asset class that's more sexy, that's that's going up faster than uh, what they're in, that causes that itch to come back. That's the most challenging part as an advisor to hold someone back from doing what they want to do, but they don't need to do. There's value in allowing them to do a little bit of that. People need to get that itch scratched, but for the most part, they need to trust you and you need to be able to hold them to the plan. So how can people follow up with you? Well, I'm very active on LinkedIn, Dmitry Farbarov. You can go to MiracleMileAdvisors.com and check out my bio there. Um, my email is dfarbarov at miraclemileadvisors.com. That's really the best way to follow me. You know, it's, it's always a pleasure to, to connect to people who are interested in exploring new new areas of growth and it's oftentimes it's financial so reach out to me at any time i love to engage great well thank you for your time i appreciated uh having you on if you like this episode definitely reach out to dimitri as he said on linkedin or his website i'll put all those links up on the show notes you'll be able to find them at we live to build.com slash listen and don't forget entrepreneurship is a marathon not a sprint so take care of yourself every day thank you dimitri thanks john